Can you hear me? All right. Now, according to study, about 8% of adults here in the United States suffer from what's known to be called astrophobia. What is astrophobia? Astrophobia is the fear of thunder. Here in South Florida, we usually experience occasional thunders, and it has become part of our lives. My three-year-old daughter would always run behind me every time she hears a thunder. Anyone still do that? Afraid of thunder? Now, over the last couple of days, um, there's a tropical storm that's being monitored. Her name is Fiona. And too bad she didn't make it today. But I remember the famous weather forecaster in the Philippines. His name is Mangtani. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. He would always say, namumuong sama ng panahon or low pressure area. This low pressure area is, area is a huge mass of dark clouds forming in the sky coupled with lightnings and thunders. And if you see that in the sky, it tells you there's a hurricane coming. Here in Florida, we always have hurricanes. This is actually hurricane season up to November. So when the disciples asked Jesus about the end of the world, like, you know, like looking at the dark cloud of sky, he, Jesus used the metaphor of the fig tree. Listen to what he said in Matthew 24. He said, from the fig tree, learn its lesson as soon as each branch becomes tender and put, puts out its leaves. You know what summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And here, Jesus used the fig tree as a metaphor for the coming of the age or his second coming. But he talked about summer. His point is that when you see the fig tree having leaves, you know that it's the signs of the better things. Leaves mean summer, summer means fruit, fruits means it's party time. It's not yet winter, it's still celebration. But, you know, summer is not forever. So John picks up this metaphor of fig tree and he uses it in Revelation chapter 6. Let me read to you Revelation 6. He said, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Now, just like the passage in Matthew, John used this text, but this is more complex. Fig trees cannot tolerate winter. They cannot survive winter. Some, oh, a lot of fig trees, go dormant like bears on winter. So that means when there are still fruit hanging on the tree and winter comes, the fruit just falls down. They fall to the ground because it's winter. So the prospect of winter is scary. Now here in the United States, there are top three states, uh, worst states to live in during, during winter. Alaska, Michigan, Minnesota. Now according to the study, uh, Minnesota comes on top of the list. Minnesota can dip up to 60 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. Below zero. 
So we have 365 days a year. Minnesota only have 195 sunny days per year. That means four to five months, it's dark, damp, freezing in Minnesota. Anyone wants to live in Minnesota? No, I don't want to live in Minnesota. During winter, it's dark, damp, and freezing. Good news if you're a polar bear, bad news if you're vegan. Now, any, anyone here saw the Game of Thrones? All right. It's, it's an epic series of, of war, uh, political rivalries, and so on and so forth. But the most, the scariest thing in the Game of Thrones is when they say, winter is coming. Because there are some things that walk during winter. So winter is coming. So imagine this. Revelation chapter 6 and 7 is a combination of, of fig trees in winter, the dark and freezing damp winter in Minnesota, the threatening dark mass clouds with dark uh, thunders and lightnings in the sky of South Florida, and the coming winter in the Game of Thrones. Combine them together, it's Revelation 6 and 7 which means it's scary, to say the least. Revelation 6 and 7 is the image of God's judgment on the earth. It's full of wrath. These are the images that started in the first century after Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And the Roman emperor started persecuting the Christians all throughout the first to the fourth century. But the worst is the first century. Now, when we talk about tribulation, make no mistake about it, Tribulation is here and now. Tribulation is not something in the future. Tribulation is happening right here and now. Apostle Paul would say that if you follow Jesus, you will suffer persecutions. Persecution is tribulation. Jesus said that if you happen to follow me, you will also suffer persecution. That's tribulation. But while we are waiting for these things to happen, and we, it's happening right now, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ that what we are waiting for the most. And while waiting, what we do while waiting matters. In the next couple of Sundays, we will be talking about the series called What We Do While Waiting Matters. What we're waiting for is not tribulation. We're waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read to you the scary part of Revelation 6. And I know you have come across this in one way or another, either in literature or in movies, but this talks about the four horsemen. Anyone heard about it? All right. Revelation 6. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so the people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. 
and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over the fort of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, if you're reading this, this looks scary. But let me preface by saying this, that these riders and horses were figures, not literal. They were figures and therefore should not be taken literally. What that means is that we're not expecting a red horse, a pale horse, or a black horse appearing in the sky anytime soon. Because this, again, should be taken figuratively. The tribulation is a repetitive events that already happened in the past, are still happening, and will still happen in the future until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The white horse and the rider was given a bow without arrows, which means... He will come and conquer without resistance. He was given a crown. The red door symbolizes war and chaos. This time, he bears a sword. Now, think about this. Tribulation is not future because these are happening right now. What's happening between Russia and China is war. When China took over Hong Kong, it was without resistance. Think about it. It happened before, it's happening now, and it will happen in the future. It's not something futuristic. Tribulation is now. The black horse symbolizes famine. Denarius is equivalent to a day's wage. So say $100 to $200 per day. But, the, but barley and wheat are the basic food groups for the poor, which means famine. The black horse means famine. The fourth horse is a pale horse. The rider is telling, it's his name is Death. His last name is Grave, Hades. So that means if you combine all these horses together, the very last, the pale horse, is like a summary of everything that will happen. A famine, pestilence, and absolute chaos. Even wild beasts are roaming freely to kill people. These, again, are not events in the future. These events are happening right now. Tribulation is now. It's not a question of when, it's a question of intensity, how much. Now, here in the U.S., it's not too much, but you go to China, you go to North Korea, you go to the other parts of Southeast Asia, there's a lot of tribulation. You go to the Muslim countries, especially those, the very extreme Muslim countries, persecution is evident. So it's not a question of when, it's a question of intensity. Revelation chapter 6, 9 to 11. When they opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were given each a white robe and to hold and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. If you're reading this very carefully, you will see an escalation of violence against the followers of Jesus Christ. In AD 7, AD 64, Nero was the emperor of Rome. And there was a great fire that broke out in Rome, and people went to the streets and they rioted. So Nero had to find a scapegoat, and he saw the Christians. The Christians have not well blended with the polytheist culture of Rome. 
because they don't believe that Caesar is Lord and God or divine. So Nero took this chance to find the Christians as a scapegoat, and he initiated the great persecution of Christians. So Christians call them the Great Tribulation. Listen to Tacitus, the Roman historian, describe what happened. He said, accordingly, and I quote, accordingly, an arrest was first made of all Christians who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their debts. Now, what kind of debts? He said, covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. From Tacitus, Annals 1544. The Christians, in his time, were greatly persecuted. In fact, you go back to chapter 3, to the church in Sardis, Jesus said, to those who overcome, overcome does not mean they escaped death. It, it doesn't mean they, they were spared of persecution. To those who overcome means they held into their faith, but died. That's overcome. To those who overcome will be given white garments. You'll find that in Revelation chapter 3, 21. These people were given white robes. It represents all who died in the first century. And these people who were clothed in robes of white were asking, how long, O Lord, will you give us justice? I can almost hear God in the background confronting Cain when Cain murdered his own brother. And God said to Cain, your, the blood of your brother Abel is crying for justice from the ground. This is what's happening here in John chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 6. They were crying out for justice, not because they were hurt, but because they were asking for justice from God. And if you look closer, they were said a very interesting thing, but disturbing. It says, they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. What this is saying is that this is a clear indication that tribulation will continue and many will follow to death. And it seems as John is saying that this is going to be a pattern for all the Christians throughout the history who maintain their allegiance to Jesus Christ. We will all be persecuted for our faith. He's saying is that persecution is inevitable, that this will not stop until Jesus comes back again, which means we Christians are in for a ride. We are not spared simply because we're Christians. In fact, we will be persecuted because we are Christians. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Remember Matthew chapter 5? We are to be persecuted because of our faith. You remember the two American missionary couple that went to the Philippines and they were kidnapped while having their vacation, the Burnhams? In 2007, Martin and Gracia were kidnapped by an extreme Muslim um, group called Abu Sayyaf, and they were held captive. Uh, in the course of time, Martin was, was killed. He was found to have three shots on the chest. Uh, Gracia Burnham survived. And, and you might think that this is a random event, but it's not. 
if you think about it, this is not random event. These are part of the tribulation that we are in right now. I remember during the time, uh, 2021, at the height of the Black Lives Matter movement protests, people are on the streets and people and police seem to be hopeless. This group go to the streets, they break down doors of stores and shops, they loot, and nobody could stop them. They even bullied people to chant with them, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And people who do not agree, they are lambast, they are uh, hurt. If you think about it, had they succeeded, we are this close to danger as Christians because our message is antithetical to their claim. Sixth seal, Revelation 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as fig tree sheds its winter foot when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. It's, it's a scary description of what will happen. But you see, it, it does not happen. If tribulation is now, why am I not seeing the sky being rolled up and the sun is blackening and the moon is turning to blood and the stars are falling from the sky? Because if this is your first time, this language is called, is called apocalyptic language. It's a figure of figurative language of an incoming judgment. The prophets in the Old Testament would always speak about this or speak like this whenever they pronounce judgments on, say, Babylon or Edom or Syria or Egypt. So prophets like Ezekiel or Isaiah or Amos or Zephaniah, even Jesus in Matthew 24 spoke like this. The sun will go black, the moon will turn red, stars will fall from the sky. Listen to Isaiah when he talked about the judgment of God to Babylon, Isaiah 13. He said, for the stars of heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. He was talking about the judgment to the kingdom of, of Babylon. But he was talking about something, an omen from the sky that's going to fall on them. He continued it in, the verse, in chapter 34 to the kingdom of Edom. Edom now is part of the south of Jordan. He said, all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies roll up like scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine like leaves falling from fig trees. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. See, this language, this language is about destruction or judgment. What I'm saying is that this talk about death and destruction are not random events. These are happening because there are, these are judgments of God. And God allows even Christians to be persecuted during the time of tribulation. But more than that, the opening of the scroll and the coming of the four horsemen, all the death and pestilence and war, it's the judgment for the world, the world who does not acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
it's not because for God it's fun to bring out judgment, but because it's a necessary thing to call the world's attention. You see, it's not enough anymore to bring a servant or raise a prophet or bring a pastor in a world stage to tell the people that judgment is coming. They will not come because they, people will not listen. The very fact that Jesus was crucified, it's that people did not listen to the, the very God who came down on earth in flesh. They did not listen. How much more to a single prophet or a single pastor telling the world that the judgment of God is near? They will not. But these judgments are to call the world's attention. And while there's time, God is telling them to repent. I take the lesson from the pandemic very seriously. And you might be asking, who did it? Who's to blame for the pandemic? I have no answer for that. But the bottom line is that God allowed this to happen. To get the people's attention that this is part of the tribulation. The people in Revelation chapter 6 verse 17, 17 those who were not part of the people wearing white, they were asking, who can stand? In Revelation 6, 17, the people said, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Revelation chapter 6 ends with a question from the kings, the generals, the rich, the powerful, the slaves, and the free. In other words, the people who do not acknowledge that Jesus is Lord is asking the question, who can stand? Who can stand for what? Who can stand against the wrath of God? If God is pouring his wrath, who can stand? What they mean is that who can confidently stand with the wrath that's coming? Who can stand confidently be found righteous before God? Who is righteous before God? Who, who will not be punished from this wrath? That's what they're asking about. Who can stand? We're, when we're talking about righteous, we're not talking about perfect because we Christians are not perfect. We're talking about who is holding on to their faith that is called righteous. Who can stand confident and righteous so that they know that the wrath of God is not falling on them? But, but the question is, why are Christians also persecuted? Why are Christians also experiencing the same thing that the wicked are experiencing? We are experiencing that to be purified, not to be punished. Those two are different. When you are so angry with your kid for doing something wrong, out of anger, you discipline. That's punishment. But when you discipline because of love, that is purification. The tribulation that we're going through is purification, not punishment. We have to ask and answer the question, who can stand in the context of where we are right now here in America? We live in a culture where people reject God because it runs contrary to their understanding of who God is. To tell them that God is a God of wrath, to tell them that God is a God who will punish people for their wickedness, they will reject God. Because people only want a God who loves a God who includes, a God who does not discriminate, a God who does not punish, a God who understands that we are weak and that we have our own preferences and our pronouns so that therefore if God is angry and will punish me, he must be a bigot who does not understand that we are born this way. Now to some degree, the people also have misunderstood who Jesus is. 
the people have, have painted the picture of a Jesus who is gentle and soft-spoken, who is ready to help, charitable to the poor. Some would even call Jesus their best friend. That's who Jesus is to them. But in fact, the gospel also tells us that Jesus became angry one time. He went straight to the temple. He lambasted all the people there, money-changing people. And he disrupted the business. He became angry one time. This is not the sort of Jesus that people wanted to hear about. This, but this is the sort of Jesus that we have to know. This is the sort of Jesus that's being described in Revelation 6. The God who sits on the throne is the one who holds the scroll. And the Lamb took the scroll and opened the seals. That's Jesus Christ. He's able to open the scroll and pour judgment on the world. The, boiling, the water's boiling point is 212 Fahrenheit. At that point, it's dangerous, scalding. You will not drink it, correct? Even if you're going for the Guinness World Record, you will not do it. Coffee is usually served at 120 Fahrenheit. At that point, it's pleasurable to drink. I'm supposing that a lot of people know Jesus at 120 Fahrenheit, but not at 212 Fahrenheit. Because they only know a Jesus who loves, but not a Jesus who gives justice. So the people are asking, who can stand against God's wrath? And this is what happened next. John heard a magic number, and I'm very sure you're interested to hear what's this about. He heard 144,000 people sealed and marked for God. Let me read to you what he saw. So what he heard is the number 144,000, but what he saw is kind of different. Revelation 7 verse 9. It says, After this, and I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what we heard is 144,000. And then if you read the book of Revelation chapter 7, it would list all the sons of Jacob, 12,000 from each sons, excluding Dan and Ephraim. There's another talk about why. But it's all about the sons of Jacob. But what he saw, instead of, instead of seeing all the ethnic Jews coming from all the 12 sons of Jacob, he saw people from every nation, from every tribe, from every peoples and language. This is like what he heard and saw. He heard about this, this figure having a title of a lion from the tribe of Judah, but he saw a lamb. This is something like this. Although he heard 12,000 from 12 sons of Israel, what he saw are all sorts of people from every tribe, nation, people, and language. Now, you must have read the Bible and encountered the story of Noah. Noah had three sons, and flood came, and all the people left were Noah, Mrs. Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth, and the Mrs. All eight people saved. They only have one language, one tribe, one people, and one nation. But then in Genesis chapter 11, just two chapters after the flood, God came down and confused the languages. And after that, you have more nations, more tribes, more languages, more peoples. 
And it's like John here is saying, God is reversing the punishment now. He's saving all the people from all nations, all tribes. This is not just about Jews. If you're thinking that only the people of God, the Jews, are chosen, therefore they are special, it's not. Because right at this point, John is saying the salvation is also for all the tribes, people, nation, and language. It's for everyone, including you, including Kapampangans and Tagalogs and Bisaya. And you know what I mean. This is for everyone. They started with one language, but now it's for everyone. What's interesting here is that what John heard is 144,000. Who are these 144,000? Some Christian groups, they say that these 144,000 are special kind of ordained pastors, 144,000. Some would say that there are 144,000 special people from a prominent church in Davao City. Now, if you think about it, if this is about the church, the number of people who died in the persecution under the the Roman emperors in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, is more than 144,000. So it cannot be a, a literal number, 144,000. What I'm saying is this, this is a figure, figure of speech to symbolize all the church, all the people from every tribe, nation, language, and people. And they are well represented on earth. This is not literal. This is a figure of speech. What is interesting here is that the number becomes insignificant. The more important question is their identity and their message. Who are they and what are they saying? Now, this may not mean much to you, but this group of people were wearing white and having in their hands palm branches. Palm branches, anyone? Sunday, palm branches. When Jesus Christ, in his last week, entered the east gate of Jerusalem, he was riding a donkey, and the people were were greeting him, Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna literally means save us. That's the literal translation of Hosanna. It's not praise you, it's save us, son of David. And the people dressed in white robes are saying salvation belongs to our God. They're not saying save us. They're already proclaiming that salvation is from God. They know it because they're there around the throne of God. Them being dressed in white is them being sealed but not spared from the tribulation. They were sealed so that when judgment comes, God knows who they are. And they have the assurance that they are sealed, not spared. See, at this point, these people, the 144,000, are waiting for justice. But they are already secured. Let me give you an example for this one. And then I think you would identify this one. All those who immigrated to the United States, you are sort of holding your breath until you get the visa and the ticket, right? Without the visa and the ticket, you're still not sure, am I going to the U.S. or not? But the moment you get the visa and you purchase your ticket, it's like if, even if you haven't taken the flight yet, you are already secured. So these people who are wearing white, who have not yet resurrected from the dead, are already secured because they are already in the presence of God. But John needed to be sure about these people, so he asked the elder. And the elders, one of the elders, explained to him who were those who were dressed in white. And the elder 
said that they were the ones coming out from the great tribulation. You will find that in your Bible. This is called great tribulation because of its scope and magnitude. Again, when we're talking about tribulation, we're talking about when it started. It started in the first century after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it continued to the to present. So we are talking about the tribulation that is continuing up to the present. Its magnitude and its scope. Now, the seven-year figure that you will find in the book of Revelation, the Great Tribulation, is again a figurative language. It's not literal. It cannot be just seven years. Because from the time that Jesus was crucified, Christians or those who follow Jesus were persecuted. Again, you'd have to take it figuratively. The first batch of the martyrs, those who died in the first century, according to chapter 7, verse 14, they, it says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is very interesting. How do you wash your, your clothes and become white in the blood of the Lamb? Should there be stains? Because in the ancient time, the washing of the blood, the blood purifies. That's their understanding of, of sacrifices. So that these people have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this is sort of alluding to a story in Exodus. In Exodus, right after the Israelites exited Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, went straight to Sinai, at the foot of Mount Sinai, they were waiting for God because God decided he will meet with the people. So God told Moses, I want to meet the people, but let them be ready and be prepared. This is what God said to Moses. Exodus 19. When God told the words of the people to the Lord, and the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. There you go. And be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. This was Israel's first encounter with the Holy God. And they must be prepared. They must be purified. Therefore, they must first wash their garments. Can you imagine this? In the wilderness where there's no water, they will have to wash their garments. It's, it's necessary if they are to encounter a holy God. In the same way, John is describing these people whom he saw, 144,000, wearing white robes who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They are purified, in other words. And after that, John bursts into a song. John, Revelation 7, verse 15. He said, Therefore... They are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. And watch this. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is very interesting. Dense, but very interesting. The first part of the song paints a picture of a God like an eagle who protects the young, gives shelter. The second, in verse 16, paints a picture of an image of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. Hunger, thirst, scorching heat. You get the picture. But verse 17 sounds like an echo of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside quiet waters. At this point... It's a spring of living water. But to the first century Christian, 
the one that John is writing to, they know the scriptures. They have read Isaiah or they have heard about Isaiah. And they knew that this is about Isaiah chapter 49. You see, 700 years from the time of the Babylonians destroyed the temple to the time of Jesus Christ to AD 70 when the second temple was destroyed, they were waiting for the, for the return of God. When the first temple was destroyed, God's presence went away. And they know that God has not returned yet because the second temple was destroyed. And it was empty even when it was destroyed. The most holy place was empty. The Ark of the Covenant was not there. God's throne was not there. They knew that God is not there. But they were waiting for the return of God. They did not know that it was Jesus Christ himself who came for them. And so people are waiting for the return. So when they talked about Isaiah 49, they were thinking, this is about the return of God to the land of promise. Here's a way to think about it. To be away from the presence of God is to be in exile. Think about Adam and Eve. They were pushed away from the Garden of Eden, from the presence of God. Exile. When God's presence came out of the temple, it was also an exile. And the land was not anymore a holy land. The promise, therefore, of no more hunger or thirst or being exposed to the scorching sun and be instead guided to the springs of living water is an image of God returning. To think about no more hunger, no thirst, no scorching sun. It's God returning. It's God shepherding them back. Anyone here have been to a camping in the forest? Cool. The first day is good. You know, green trees, fresh air, stars in the sky, good. Second day, you're going to be thinking of where to do your personal, personal business. Job number one, job number two. Where to cook your food, brush your teeth, internet, mosquitoes. Third day, you know, I can go on and on. But imagine the Israelites wandering like hobbits for 40 years, scorching sun, thirsty, hungry. I can imagine the, the Israelites coming out from Egypt full of promise, looking forward to the land flowing with milk and honey, like a teenager graduating from high school, you know, thinking about college only to find out that he needed to work right after graduation. This is the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. They have wandered without proper lavatories, no internet connections, no medical insurance. Water is scarce. The food is repetitive. Bread in the morning, bread for lunch, bread before you go to bed. You get the picture. That's why it makes sense for the promise, no more hunger, no more thirst, no more scorching sun. For us, maybe it doesn't make sense, but for a homeless... This makes a lot of sense. Now, I don't know about you, and I'm not complaining either. But if you wake up 5 a.m. in the morning every day, you clock in, you clock out, rain or shine, you go from paycheck to paycheck, add to that the unending needs of paying bills and mortgages and relatives asking for money from the Philippines, you would probably ask the same thing. How long, oh Lord, will this go for me? Do you ever long for the day when you can just wake up 
a little bit late in the morning without worrying about bills, where you can just brew your own coffee, this single origin Colombian coffee, not Starbucks, Eric. And you can just relax. Does it sound like retirement to you? It sounds like retirement to me. But even at retirement, you have bills to pay. You still have to buy food. You still need medical insurance. You have to repair and maintain your house. I mean, when is this going to stop? When is this going to stop? All of us, in one way or another, is longing to be free from all of this, from the ugliness and sickness and corruption, the malady that plagues our human condition. We all want to be free from this. So we can also ask the same thing. Who can stand from the wrath of God if this is going on and on? It can be you. It can be me if you're part of the church. It can be you like the overcomers of the 144,000 people who hold on to their faith. That's why we say what we do while waiting for the second coming matters. We have to hold on to the faith. You cannot just give up. You're not spared from tribulation. That's a bad news. The good news is that you are sealed, just like 144,000. You are sealed. So God knows who you are. You are marked. You may be experiencing tribulation and persecution of some sorts, but you are marked for God. Would you stand? Would you stand with me? See, if this is your prayer, and I would like to invite you. This is something that you can decide right now. This is something that you can decide right now. The whole world will suffer tribulation. The whole world will suffer tribulation, but only Christians will suffer persecution. It's for our purification. If we but hold on to our faith, how do we hold on to our faith? We can hold on to our faith by surrendering our hearts by abandoning our souls to Jesus who has promised God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Make this your prayer today. Make this your prayer today. Lord, I'm surrendering my life to you. I want, I want to be part of that 144,000 dressed in white with palm branches and saying, oh, salvation belongs to our God. And though we may suffer persecution and tribulation on this earth, we are sealed for God. Let's sing this song.